Alrighty, here we go. Um, I'm sitting here with a good friend of mine. We met at UCLA uh, a while back, actually, with, your, with 2013. So 10 years I've known this guy. He's two years older than me. Uh, we met through the, uh, a club that we we're in. We'll call it a club. And if you know Wes and I, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, but yeah, Wes is a good friend of mine, somebody that I've looked up to for a long time. Somebody I've learned a lot from and have the good fortune of sitting down with him today. Get to know him a little bit, ask him a couple questions. Um, so yeah, thanks for being here. Of course. The, the first thing I have for you is, from what I've, I've seen and known about you, it seems like you're very much like a go-getter. Like you're, you're a hard worker, you're at the top of the game, your game, you're sharp. What do you attribute that to? Has that always been how you how you are? Did somebody inspire that in you? Yeah, where did that come from? Yeah, that's a good question. One that I think about a lot, actually, even of myself. Um, you know, I'm at the stage of my life now where I'm thinking about having a family and um, you know trying to reflect back on the kinds of values that I grew up with and put me in this space where I am, you know, very ambitious. And it's a puts and it takes thing, you know, I think that ambition sometimes leads you to be unable to enjoy a quiet day or to not be kind of fully saturated with activities. But to answer your question, I think a lot of it is just, you know, having immigrant parents in that upbringing. I think it's a very uh, typical story, yeah. just growing up in an environment where the people immediately around you are all working so hard, um, struggling to make a living, to provide for their families. It's inspiring and it just kind of is embedded in your DNA at some point that you should be working really hard. Yeah. Even, you know, given the privilege of now being a, you know, children of immigrants, mm -hmm. I might not need to in order to have the same kind of level of lifestyle or what have you. Um, it's an interesting dichotomy and one that I'm struggling with because I think where we are in life, like we really got to prioritize just being happy over trying to strive for some external validation or some kind of like monetary outcome. It's, you know, something that's challenging to work through. Yeah. Was there a moment in your life when you realized this? Like, oh, I see this in my parents. Now I need to kind of integrate that into my own being and the way I approach things. Was there a moment or a situation where you made that realization? I don't think it was conscious. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of the default offering and observing a dad who worked, you know, six days a week mm -hmm. um, all through my young childhood and only very recently has like tried to taper that down to a more manageable workload. So there's not a moment where I kind of observed that and said oh like i should be like this it's just kind of all i've known and i think when you that's all you know at an early age it's hard to disabuse yourself of those notions yeah. um, but i think now i'm actually trying to observe more of the opposite and counteract some of that subconscious programming mm -hmm. and yeah just like not take work too seriously and get too stressed out about it yeah so uh how do you do that what are the other things that you're trying to integrate or think about so that you're not taking work too seriously? 
Yeah. Um, I think it's a lot of self-talk mm-hmm. to begin with. Yeah. Just when I catch myself being really riled up by things not going my way mm-hmm. or people not working with the same frame of like what work should be as, yeah. as I work in, um, just catching that and then realizing that there are other paths, right? Yeah. If I'm going to log off at a much more reasonable hour, let's say I like wrap things up early, <clears throat> I shouldn't feel bad about being done for the day before you know the clock hits mm-hmm. a certain time. Just got to like find things to fulfill that time um, and make peace with it. You know, I think something that people with my work approach struggle with is, you know, finding hobbies that you can enjoy that are not purely competitive. You know, if you're just only doing competitive hobbies, you're just replacing one type of work for another type of work. Uh, Albeit one that you're kind of like picking up yourself. But I don't know, like being able to just like watch TV mm-hmm. and do all that stuff is something that you got to learn weirdly. Yeah. You know, so. you got to teach yourself to be okay with that. Yeah. Like, yeah. You've earned this. I'm chilling. I don't have to think about the other stuff right now. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, we're going to jump around all over the place here, but kind of two questions. One, you're born and raised in Elk Grove, right? Uh, so the first question is, what is your relationship to that place? And the second one is, what is West like as a young person? If somebody asks you to describe West as a young person, let's say leading up to like high school. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was it like growing up in Elk Grove? Um, for the people listening out there, I'll say Elk Grove is more commonly referred to as Sacramento. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just so people have a frame of reference yeah, yeah. of where it is in the world. Um, but it was a pretty typical suburban upbringing, I would say. Um, I lived at the end of a cul-de-sac with lots of young kids my age. So I grew up basically playing outside every day. Um, a lot of freedom to like bike, um, not just in my cul-de-sac or my neighborhood, but basically all around the two or three streets, two or three main streets that uh, made up, you know, the little town or city that you call Elk Grove. Um, And for a while it was very underdeveloped. It's kind of a farm town in a way. There's lots of cows, a lot of pastures uh, right outside of the suburb that I would pass every day going to high school. Um, So I would say, uh, yeah, very typical suburban upbringing Mm -hmm. surrounded by a lot of young kids my age, uh, a lot of immigrant families, but then also some people that were more American. And so it was very uh, multicultural, right? Like. Uh, racially just very diverse and you have friends all across the spectrum and it was just fun you know it was a good time it was a good time you didn't really think about like all of the world issues it was also the time before smartphones and like you you didn't really know about the outside world too much it wasn't the only interaction I had with the internet was to play video games for the most part you know Um, whereas today I feel like kids are just so much more connected but um, you know some more about Elk Grove and Sacramento more generally is like, you know, probably like a second or third tier up and coming metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. Um, Sacramento has a very big government based workforce because the capital of California is there. 
Uh, my mom was a government worker. Um, and so very stable. The economy is like generally ticking upwards, but not in like some aggressive fashion. So I think as far as when I was growing up, there was just a lot of optimism around you know, getting a stable job, providing for your family and having your quality of life just kind of slowly improve over time. Yeah. And I think that's like a very powerful thing because it just inspires people to be very positive. Right. Um, the other thing about Sacramento at large is like there is actually one professional sports team, my favorite sports team, the Sacramento Kings. Yeah. Um, and around the time that I was growing up, a lot of my formative memories in those early 2000s were, you know, a small market team being very, very big on the biggest stage, right? This was a team that uh, Sports Illustrated called the greatest show on hardwood, really? right? Yeah, you know, Jason Williams throwing the elbow passes, yeah. you got Divac, you got Lottie, all these guys. So um, I think the story of Sacramento is very much tied up in the story of this basketball team because it's our only franchise. Yeah. And um, there is just so much pride around it. That's one thing that I think Sacramento really exemplifies is like a small town embodying that, you know, Sacramento versus everybody mindset. Right, right. We're all uniting together. We're all united together. And because there's only one focal point for that unity in terms of a sports franchise, yeah. it's like that team is the lifeblood of that town. And I think um, it's something that you know, probably happens for a lot of towns that have one sports franchise of the same size, but mm -hmm. um, maybe like one cultural value that instills in the people is one of loyalty. Mm, you know, yeah. You just like, like stick with your with your people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like uh, stick with your people. Um, you know, it's not always about the dollar, mm -hmm. and there's a whole history of that team. You know potentially moving and like the whole city standing up to rally around it staying mm -hmm. that that's definitely a formative memory for me right. you know um, seeing people make decisions that are not the best financially mm -hmm. keeping a, a team in a small market like Sacramento mm -hmm. but doing it because it's the right thing to do and um, you know maybe this is me just like much later signing value and learnings to that period, but it seems pretty powerful to me. Basketball meant a lot to that city and it continues to. Right. Well, I'm glad you bring it up. I was gonna ask you later, but might as well since we're on the subject. Uh, how did you get into basketball? Was it watching the Kings? Was it playing in, with your friends in the neighborhood during recess or both? Because you're a big fan, Yeah. right? You sounds like from that early age, that time period until this day, you keep up with it, you know, a lot about it so yeah how did you get into it what do you and, and what do you like about basketball yeah so I think I got into basketball first as a kid playing basketball okay. um, the neighbors that lived across the street from me had kind of one of those hoops that you put up and it was just always there it was the biggest part of the cul-de-sac and the entire neighborhood kind of like rallied around this end of the cul-de-sac where the basketball hoop was yeah. um, and we played basically every night. In the summer, we would play until our parents kind of shouted for us to come in kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just, you know, it's like one of my earliest memories playing any kind of sport. Mm -hmm. I was growing up in this house, shooting around on this hoop. 
And then this family that had the hoop was actually much more serious about basketball. Both of their kids played in kind of youth leagues and church leagues and eventually high school growing up. So I, I distinctly remember being like much worse than them at basketball. Yeah. But that was never a deterrent because yeah. when you're playing at that age, it's not really that competitive. It's just like there's three balls out. So maybe if you're making more shots, you get the ball back more, but just go get a rebound and just put up shots kind of thing. So uh, that was maybe my first exposure. And then to the Kings, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure how we got into it, but I think at some point my dad just started watching Kings games and putting it on the TV. Um, and then, yeah, I just got more and more invested in that team. Yeah. What's crazy is, my Kings fandom basically deepened every year as the team got progressively worse and worse. So like uh, okay. when I was the most casual fan was when we were the best. Yeah. You know, I probably first started becoming a fan when the city was wrapped up in the early 2000s Kings. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, my fandom grew over the next 16 or 17 years where every year we were just basically perennial bottom of the barrel team in the West, yeah. like laughing stock of the league. And I think that's actually another very formative experience for me is like that loyalty element, you know? Uh, I almost can't respect people who, you know, were Kings fans and then I see later posting hashtag strength in numbers or dub nation because I know that they grew up in Sacramento and at one point they were hardcore Kings fans. And so to me, it's almost like a litmus test of your character. For sure. If you can like stick and be loyal to this team. Um, I know people shouldn't take sports that seriously. So if you want to just cheer for a winning team and have something to celebrate over, by all means. By all means. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I kind of wear it as a badge of honor that I've managed to stay a Kings fan for. You stuck it out. I stuck it out. And there are a good group of us that stuck it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of unrelated, but it's like tied up to the people who maybe this like whole generation of basketball, um, which is kind of like tied up in the LeBron player empowerment movement, mm-hmm. where you know it's not just the teams have no loyalty to the players, but the players have very little loyalty to the teams, and I think often that dynamic is missing the third element, which is the fans, which have loyalty to the team right. and to the players. So like if we're talking about what's best for the end customer, the fans of a team, it would be if teams could stay a little bit more loyal and if players could make self-sacrificial decisions on their salaries or other things, um, maybe not ring chase um, and just like stick with it or chase the money. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that's a complete aside, but um, maybe enough to say like I am nostalgic for the era of basketball where stars started and ended their careers on teams for the most part. Mm-hmm. All right, one last question since we're on it. Does, does Dame stay with the Blazers for his whole career, or do you think he'll move somewhere? I think Dame is that player who will stay. Um, he's expressed it a couple times on some podcasts that mm-hmm. he really cares for, yeah, he has some allegiance to the city. Yeah. Um, you know, it was much more common in the age of Kobe to stick it out with a franchise. And I think, like, you know, I almost wait the Dirk Nowitzki ring or some of the later Kobe rings 
much higher than I would weight a LeBron ring. I'm not like a total LeBron hater. I actually think LeBron's pretty good, but you know what I'm saying. I think a good comp would be KD. Yes. 2017, 2018. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I I think personally that I would like Dame to stay in Portland. Mm -hmm. And I think that he will because of some things he stated, but who knows? Right, exactly. I wouldn't blame him if he left. Uh, Everybody keeps saying Dame to Miami. I mean, Miami would be a spiritually consistent place for him to land. Yeah, exactly. 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 Uh, But anyways, back to you. A couple questions about college. So, as we mentioned earlier, both went to UCLA. That's where we met. Uh, First question is, how did you decide to go to UCLA? Was that something that was on your radar? Did you want to go there? Um, Yeah, let's start with that. So, my older sister actually went to UCLA. She's six years older than me. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, she did. And so... I think it was always very top of my mind. Um, And then just like very practically, the only schools that I applied to were UCLA, Berkeley, I think San Diego, and then Davis, and then Stanford. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got into the four UCs, I didn't get into Stanford. I think if I'd gotten to Stanford, I probably would have gone there instead. But then when the decision came down to Berkeley or UCLA, um, just as an 18 year old kid, I was like, I don't wanna be that close to home. Yeah. Um, and then I also knew like the basketball program at UCLA was great. And so for all of these like relatively, uh, you know, these relatively trivial reasons, yeah. UCLA ended up being the place that I went. Mm-hmm. Um, I also spent like a weekend on the Berkeley campus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think they were doing some, I don't know if you call it like a prospect sleepover thing just so you get a feel of the campus and I distinctly remember my hosts who were I think like second year or third year Berkeley students Uh, one their dorms looked atrocious and were gross Uh, the food was disgusting and they just didn't look happy and I think at at one point one of them even was like yeah like I would probably choose UCLA if I could do it all over again so Mm -hmm. they didn't do a great job of selling me on that campus Um, and you know, UCLA is just an amazing, magical place in a lot of ways. So. Absolutely. Which is my next question. You can keep it. Um, so when people ask you, oh, what was UCLA like? How do you answer that question? I have really positive associations with UCLA. Mm-hmm. I think something about that campus is just... Oh, can I pause you real quick? Yeah. If you want to mention the club that we're, uh, we were a part of, you're more than welcome to. I just mentioned it like that because I didn't know. Yeah. But if you want to shout them out, you can shout them out. Oh yeah, shout out Omega Sigma Tau. Let's go. Let's go. That's where we met. That's where Omega we met. Omega Sigma Tau. Omega Sigma Tau, uh, fraternity on UCLA campus. Um, I have really positive associations with UCLA. Mm-hmm. It's, first of all, it's beautiful. I think the weather and the campus is just like, it's just like a place that inspires hope and positivity. Yeah, um, great. Yeah, and the people that we met there, I think, uh, really opened the aperture for me and helped me grow. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of mentors as a result of Omegas yeah. um, and a lot of people that we met through other programs and the exposure that we had there that are still really influential in my life today. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, it was just like very positive reflection on that experience. Okay. Um, if somebody, I'm sure you've gotten this question plenty of times, but I'd be curious to hear what your response is. 
if you were, if somebody about to enter college right now asked you, you know, I'm about to start school, how do I make the most in about four years here? What would you say to them? Yeah, I have two minds on this. It really depends on what you're going to study. Okay. Um, if you want to do something uh, highly technical, like a hard science, call it physics or math or um, pre-med, pre-med, yeah, one of these biologies, um, then you should really pick a program where they are exemplary in that field mm-hmm. and get the best education possible. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to take literally any other subject, and this can be somewhat controversial, I'm an economics major, right. um, in, and I include economics in the second category. If you're going to take any of these other things where it's not a hard science, I think it more matters about the mentors and relationships you'll build um, and honestly how much fun you'll have at that place because I I think this is probably true for a lot of folks that aren't taking a hard science let's say Um, you really don't take a lot away from the education probably like 80% of the value I got out of college was just yeah the people and the relationships Um, that being said you know the friends that I have that became academics and got PhDs and you know um, I would probably even exclude pre-med from this you know only like people that truly become researchers or what have you really rely on that education and within that former bucket so I don't know what percentage that is by and large if a new high school graduate was coming to me and didn't have this like overwhelming passion for say physics and said like I want to be a physicist and a researcher growing up I would just tell them like, well, you should go somewhere good that has the credential because it's going to help you pragmatically get a job yeah. and be marketable in the future. But aside from that, once you like above a certain bar where the pedigree is the same, then just go do, go to the school that you think you'll have the most fun at and the people that you meet you think will really resonate with you. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say in advance like where that might be, right. but in any case, I think that that's kind of how I would think about it shaking out. Um, if you're not necessarily interested in that aspect of it or it's not something you're prioritizing, I feel like honestly going to community college would be a really great option. Mm-hmm. Like I think about, I think about four-year universities, the teachers being really there to do research, yeah, right, um, and teaching is something that they just do as a chore, like something that's required of them. It's an obligation. But uh, community college teachers, they're there because they want to teach and they are passionate about that. And so I think in terms of the education you'll get, especially in some of these just more foundational classes, you probably get a much higher um, value, certainly get a higher ROI out of, you know, going to a community college for those years. But Mm -hmm. you're obviously sacrificing a little bit on the... um, kind of like four years that you get to have this extended vacation yeah, dimension. Um, okay, cool. I actually didn't write this down, but it came up. It's something that I'd like to hear from a lot of different people. Essentially, the question is, do you think we should be advocating for college as strongly as we have been? And I imagine the same for like, yeah, we're not that far apart. Um, for me, it felt like the story was always, yeah, you got to go to a four-year university so that you can end up getting a good job after, right? Mm-hmm. Like, get a good job, and you probably have a prosperous life. 
yeah. middle class life you know you get a house get a car start a family all that kind of stuff right but it feels like that is not the case for a lot of people and then on top of that the cost of four year universities is pretty damn high yeah. to put it bluntly and it doesn't seem like it's decreasing so the question comes up for a lot of people is like is college really worth it right yeah. and I think you might also have an interesting perspective because you've worked in a lot of different settings yeah. at a high level so you've seen you know professionals of all different types do you think uh, yeah do you think we should still be advocating for college as strongly as we have been or should we try to give young people alternative options yeah I have so many thoughts on this first I'll just say that the value of a four-year degree from a prestigious institution is almost purely in the doors that it opens mm. so I did go into a relatively prestigious career right out of undergrad I went to a top-tier management consulting firm that option is not available if you did not at minimum go to a top-tier UC like UCLA right. to put it bluntly they're just not recruiting from 80% of the schools in the US yeah. So would I have had the options that I had post-college if I didn't go to UCLA? Absolutely not. Um, that being said, I don't think that there is a lot of value in a four-year degree and accumulating all of this debt if you're not going to a university that has that name recognition. Mm -hmm. The value is not in the education. It's just in the credential. Yep. So, and you also have to think about whether that credential. You said name recognition. The right? name recognition. Yeah. yeah. You have to think for yourself, uh, and it's hard as an 18 year old to make this decision. Like, is the thing that I want to do with my life going to be gated behind not having gone to a four year institution of this pedigree, mm -hmm. let's say? Um, so by and large, the safest option, if you want to have all the doors open to you, is to go to the best university you can get into because that's going to have the, more, the most doors open to you. Yeah. But if I know that my dream in life and my passion at age 18 is to become a high school teacher, I think you can 100% accomplish that with way less money mm -hmm. by going to a two-year associate's degree and then kind of completing your school in the most cost-effective way personal and then getting a teaching credential. Yeah. So the shorter answer to your question is, I'm trying to think of the shortest way to answer it, frankly. Right. Uh, no, it's a tough question. It's a tough question. Yeah. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think as a nation we should be encouraging so many people to take college, uh, to, to attend college and to assume all this debt. Yeah. Um, and I think there's been a real kind of death in vocational education in America. And that's why we have this shortage of very high paying, but maybe more kind of like uh, hand skill based yeah. professions, blue collar types jobs. Type jobs yeah. You know, um, it's, it's definitely unfortunate. And I just think about like, had I left UCLA with a different degree or left and just didn't go into my line of work, 
like how long it would have taken me to pay down my tuition. Um, And, you know, I was obviously also well supported by my family and all this stuff, you know, I think it just matters so much what you study, right? Like if you're trying to attend college for a financial outcome that is positive, you got to make sure you're studying a very specific set of things Mm -hmm. and then also attending a pretty top tier university because what you're getting is a credential that says, you know, these people think I am a very highly sought after prospect and I've been validated um, all these different ways. And then because I studied this specific thing, then I can, you know, come in and be valuable. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty tough bargain, especially with how fast the costs are rising. Yeah, exactly. But then, and then also you got like the extracurriculars too, and then like the professional internship type of stuff that you can add on to your resume, let's say, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, let's do it. So you you recently turned 30. That's right. When did you turn 30, if you don't mind me? In answering? March. In March. Oh, it's pretty recent. Um, can you walk me through your 20s? Like... What is that? What is it evolution like? What are some of the big moments of growth or learning? Uh, there's like a math term for this. That's okay. Starts with a C, I think. But um, yeah, what are some of the big moments in your twenties where you really where you feel like you grew up mm. or experiences? Yeah, um, maybe to go back just a little bit beyond my uh, you know early twenties. I went to UCLA at age 18 and then very quickly met my now fiance, Chie. Mm-hmm. So shout I think, out shout out Chie. Um, so there's a big component missing from my 20s that I think would be more typical of most folks, which is dating a lot and like trying to find love and having that be like a very present component of, of my 20s. So by and large, like by 21, Chie and I were like super steady. I think we were doing long distance at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really have to think about that huge component of my life. Yeah. Um, so 21 was when I graduated undergrad and started my career at this management consulting firm. Um, I was there for two years, um, probably the hardest that I ever want to work in my life, if I'm honest, mm-hmm. um, but a very formative experience in terms of building a foundational skill set, a practical real world skill set almost like a trade skill that I could always fall back on in any of my career. So this is like being very proficient in Excel, being very analytical, being able to present to senior people at these companies and not be intimidated. A lot of that skill set I attribute back to those first two years where I worked crazy hard in the super high pressure environment. Mm -hmm. um, And you know, it, it really laid the foundation for my future success. That was in Los Angeles. I was living with a group of guys that um, are now some of my best friends and will be some of the groomsmen when I get married. Um, and I just met them in this period. So I think, you know, call it 21 to 23 was very much finding my uh, post college friend group and then developing a professional skill set. Uh, 23 to 25, maybe 26, I'd moved up to San Francisco. So I was now living with Chie uh, and some other friends in Mission Bay. And I was working at Yelp, 
leveraging that same skill set, applying it to a different context, mm-hmm. um, and then maybe honing a little bit more of my skills. So those first four to five years, I think, was really just becoming so competent at this job and feeling really com- confident as like a working person. Young professional. A young professional, right. Like feeling like I was no longer an entry level, worrying about having this insecurity about if I was employable in this capacity or not. Mm-hmm. Those first four to five years were really important for that. Um, and in my personal life, thankfully, I had a lot of those same friends from when I was living in LA, working at LAK, also moved to San Francisco. And so staying close to that group um, and getting to see a lot of the same people, doing a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Uh, another pretty like, and also in terms of like the work-life balance, like very much a taper down from how crazy working in management consulting was. Mm-hmm. Um, I then moved another job in my mid twenties to work at Facebook. I was there for two and a half years. And professionally, it was like a huge growing up moment because the two other companies that I worked at were much smaller. Um, LEK, my office was 70 people. Yelp, I think, was maybe 1,000 to 2,000 people, um, but working on a very small team. And Facebook at that time was probably 30,000 employees. It's enormous already. Um, And just seeing the that kind of operation at scale and you know how things get done the politics for lack of a better word um, competing interests seeing that game being played at the highest level i think was another dimension that was really positive for my learning so i had all the developed all the hard skills early and then now I was getting to observe the game being played at the highest levels, mm. at the highest stakes, yeah. uh, with people that had really honed that craft. Yeah. Um, and this time I also moved to Seattle. So I was living there for a brief period. Um, and I think like within three months of me moving there, the quarantine started, mm-hmm. so they locked everything down. So I don't think I really got to experience Seattle mm-hmm. um, all too much. Um, and then pretty soon after that, um, I all the companies converted to nomadic work or they converted to remote work rather. And I started living nomadically, which uh, I did for, I would say like a year and a half, almost two years. Uh, I spent the predominant portion of it in Hawaii uh, where I picked up some new hobbies like surfing and, you know, like really uh, got interested, invested in that. Um, And then towards the end of that period, Chi and I got engaged. So it's kind of like a 10-year saga to that point, getting engaged um, and kind of getting ready for this next phase of our lives. Um, And then that brings us basically to now where we're back settled in Los Angeles, still working remotely at a company called Gusto, Mm -hmm. um, doing product management, which is what I was doing at Facebook, um, and getting professionally to apply all the skills that I had honed in all these different places, a balance of the technical and hard skills, as well as the soft skills, um, and being able to manage an organization of scale. um, That's been really rewarding. Um, And then personally, I guess like over this entire 10 year arc was um, overlaid on top a journey towards, kind of to take a full circle to where the conversation began, like finding ways to be happy and you can already tell by how I described this 10-year period that it's like 40 to 50% anchored on what I was doing as my profession and work. 
Um, there's a huge chunk of it that are my relationships and who my friends are, and um, there's not as much description of what I was doing purely for like the joy or the passion for the thing, right? I had a lot of hobbies through this period, um, but like if you were to plot that over this 10-year period, the hobbies line was probably ticking up every year and still trying to find a place where it's like, yeah, I'm working hard, but I'm doing it so that I can enjoy all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of where we are now. I see. So you that's kind of what you were working towards, where you could live a life enjoying these other activities. Yeah. Is that right? I, I don't think I was... That's more of a later realization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there wasn't a point in, when I was 23 where I was like, oh, if I just like grind it out at LEK for a couple more I years, see, yeah. I'll have set up this future where I can like be way more interested in surfing mm-hmm. and um, free diving or what have you. But that's been the arc of it where um, I'm getting more comfortable with just spending more time on those things and uh, getting to enjoy the fruits of the labor a little bit more. Absolutely. Um, we don't have to link. We don't have to stay on this one too long. But I, I think it's good to ask. It's good to ask. I'd be curious to hear it too. Um, do you have advice for like a young person navigating their professional journey? Let's say, I'm sure you've gotten that question a lot too. Like working at Lek, I'm sure a lot of people hit you up. Can I chat with you? Can I ask you about this and that? Uh, are there some like key things that young people should know entering their professional career? Yeah, I think one that goes unexplored too often is where your unique talents line up to in terms of a career. So I've worked in like a, a lot of these like very, uh, I guess you could say like sought after jobs, and I got lucky because those sought after jobs ended up teaching me skills that I find particularly interesting. So, and maybe you could say it like the relationship is the other way. Like I developed those interests because of the work I'm doing. But I think um, if I were to look back on my pre-career, like I was always interested in numbers and statistics and um, kind of like making objective decisions about the world. So like it ended up being a natural fit that the career that I ended up pursuing was highly analytical in nature. But I can't say that to be true for everybody, right? Um, and it's hard to ask yourself. I, get, I do you know, get a lot of questions, young people asking for advice. How do I get this job? Um, how do I get to where you are? And my first question back is always like, are you sure this is what you want? Right. Tell me why you want to work in this field or get this prestigious job because if you're not enjoying it, like working 80 hour weeks is torture. It's a grind. It's a grind. So like, let's make sure that you're aligned with what you're gonna get out of this and what you'll be doing day to day before we make that decision. And um, oftentimes I get kind of like disregarded at that point in the advice. They're like, yes, 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 I'm sure that's what I wanna do. Yeah. Like, let's move on to the advice. How do I get the job? Yeah, you uh, know that's not really what they're yeah. in it for. And I can only, you know, at that point I can only say like, all right, like I'll take you at your face value. If that's what you wanna hear, then I'll give you whatever assistance that I can. But, you know, I think it's a tremendous waste of talent if you're spending too much of your time doing something that you're not passionate about. Um, And by the way, I think it's totally fine to suffer through some period of working on something you're not interested in. Mm -hmm. If you have an eye towards 
here's the skills that I'm trying to build. And this is going to enable me in the future to work on something that I'm more passionate about or solve a problem in a different context. Um, But I think what is a tremendous waste for a young person is if you're just pursuing something because your friends also want it or society is telling you that this is what you should be doing, um, that's, that's like a really bad use of your time and kind of something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've said that. I don't maybe not phrase it so aggressively, but mm-hmm. I do highly encourage them to assess what it is that they are interested in. Mm-hmm. And I fully expect like some people discover that interest after they've started their career and the the thing that I would encourage them to do is like don't fall victim to the sunk cost fallacy. If 2 years in you realize that, you know, you were doing management consulting, let's say, but you actually really want to be doing healthcare and you want to be working with patients and helping people feel healthy. The earlier you make that pivot, the quicker you are going to get to that outcome. And maybe even that second pivot, you find out some more things about yourself and you want to pivot again. Like you should make that hard right turn as quickly as you have confidence that that's something that you need to go validate. Um, Shouldn't waste another second kind of in a career just because it's paying you a salary. Um, I mean, obviously you need money to live, so like, let's make some practical caveats to that. But by and large, I think uh, young people, especially maybe it's a self-select population, especially coming out of UCLA or coming out of these um, prestigious professions, they're too interested in what is like the very next step in my career, as opposed to stepping back and saying like, what is it that I want out of this life Mm -hmm. on a decade or two decade time horizon? That's a good answer. Um, Since we're on the subject, uh, you, in my observation, in my relationship with you, you've always been, uh, let's say very generous with advice. You've been very approachable, at least for me. And again, I've seen that with other people too. In our fraternity, you served as the pledge mom. So you were you know, designated as the mentor for uh, incoming undergrads. Is that something that's always been a part of you? Like you enjoy guiding, helping, mentoring younger people? Yeah, I, I do very much enjoy it. Um, but I have conflicting feelings about it because I love to you can probably tell from this how how this conversation is going like I do love to lecture almost Mm -hmm. or tell you how I see the world and have you see the world in the same way Um, and pledge mom was actually a great instructive experience about how that is not the most effective way to get through to people because uh, you know if I think about it myself if somebody tells me something, I my instinct is almost immediately to zag and think about it the opposite way, like poke holes, yep. challenge, yep. question. Yep. Um, but if I have firsthand experience making a mistake or doing something a certain way and seeing that this other path is more clear, um, that lesson is going to stick with me. Yep. So as somebody who loves to lecture or describe or explain what the best way to do something is, um, as I'm mentoring more people nowadays, I'm basically trying to fight that urge. 
So it's more about how can I help you come to this learning on your own, on your own mm -hmm. without me, you know, describing the separate steps that, you know, I would advise you to take or yeah. I would have you. This is the way. This is Versus the way. helping yeah. them find it on their own. Yeah. And for a long time, the way I would try to like convince people of my view, let's say, was by being so logically coherent mm. in how I laid it out and meticulous where I describe every single step and it's like, you can't argue with any of this because I've like thought it all through and like I can challenge every point and refute everything you're saying. And all that does really is it gets a person to agree with you, but not internalize the message you're trying to deliver. The only way you're gonna have that message stick is if you come to that learning yourself. So, mm. you know, as I think about this next phase of mentorship, uh, whoever I get the privilege of mentoring going forward, it's more about, yeah, how can I guide them to come to that learning by their own design in a way where they don't have to completely fall flat on their face in order to come to that learning. You know, you, you want to provide enough of a guardrail where they can burn their hand on the stove but not light themselves on fire, right. you know? Absolutely. It's like uh, safe boundaries to play in. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, you can keep it. Uh, I had some. Oh yeah. Uh, last time we we hung out uh, in December or January. I think it was December. Mm -hmm. Whatever. I, did you bring up the idea that you might be a teacher one day? Is that right? Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, I think I. About it? I have yes. thought about it. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, where are your thoughts on it right now? How did that thought come up? Yeah. And what is the likelihood that you try it out one day? Well, first of all, I'll start by saying, like, my vision of being a teacher right now is highly idealistic. Okay. It's yeah. completely informed by my experience as a high schooler yeah. in a suburban <laughs> high school that was pretty high achieving and yeah. taking all these AP classes where the kids are, like, pretty ambitious and well-behaved. And I can acknowledge that that's not... You know yeah. the case for the vast majority of schools so I'm kind of looking through rose-colored glasses around that piece of it but my interest in it is yeah one going back to my I don't know like my intrinsic love to lecture mm -hmm. and to teach and instruct yeah. um, and then also coupled with me just having like a really good freaking time in high school uh, and having cool teachers where as an 18 year old I was getting a lot of good life advice from yeah. um, and also, you know, I wouldn't say they were friends, that's maybe a bit of a stretch, but at least one or two of them, I got to know a little bit closer to a peer relationship, right. um, especially during my senior year, you're like 18 years old at that point, you know, um, young adult. a young adult, you know, and being around older people that were like kind of clever and funny was was pretty interesting so I don't know I have a lot of positive memories of high school and so there's always been like a fascination with um, teaching and I think like the other maybe one or two aspects of it is like uh, like I was saying earlier I only learn by doing mm -hmm. and an extension of that is I only feel the impact of my work if I can immediately see it and I feel like you know compared to some of the more high-minded things that I'm doing now where like you might ship a product but not really know what the outcome is like I, I hardly talk to the end users of the technology products that I ship mm -hmm. uh, I probably should probably do that a little bit more 
by comparison, if you're a high school teacher, you know, I'm sure you know immediately, or at least by the end of the year, like which of these kids have I touched? Yeah. Um, which of these year, kids have I changed potentially the trajectory of their careers and inspired to be teachers or writers or scientists or what have you? Yeah. And so I've always thought that that would be like a really rewarding thing um, and something that I would you know, consider more as my career advances. Yeah. Um, it's probably not something on the immediate horizon, but you know, maybe, maybe a decade or two. You retire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just do it for like a year or something like that. Cool, man. Um, so going back to the leisure activities a little bit, I'm curious to hear. You do a lot of uh, interesting stuff, mm-hmm. in my view. Like, uh, to name a few, you got, like, you've done a triathlon. Mm-hmm. You've done, you do cycling. You do surfing. Mm-hmm. Recently, you got on this spearfishing, is that what it is? Yep. Spearfishing, freediving, rock climbing. I remember we went rock climbing one time. Yeah. What is it about all this stuff that you like? What do you get out of it? I think maybe the unifying thread between all of them is that they're physical. Mm. So like, I'm not doing a lot of like chess, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because my work is just like so oriented around a computer, mm-hmm. like almost by definition, my body is just like itching to be active yeah. at the end of the day, and that spawns a lot of those things. Um, I think another common thread between several of them is that they're about endurance and about pain tolerance. Mm. So I do marathon and, and running and then triathlon as well. Mm. And these are kind of things that, you know, an event could span two to three hours. Um, and it is like super taxing. Yeah. And so I think this goes back to something we we're talking about before around competition. Like these are true tests of the body and true tests of the, the kind of like spirit yeah. in a way, like just your ability to grit through it. And for whatever reason, those are things that are really attractive to me. Yeah, I think like putting yourself in those situations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then some of the other ones, maybe there are some common threads too, like spear fishing and rock climbing, which I don't do too much anymore, um, surfing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there is like a lot of achievement at the end of each of those. Yeah. Um, and they're not, I guess, across all of these activities, you don't have to take them in the lens of competing with others. It's very much about improving yourself and getting better, Yes. right? Mm-hmm. So um, I love personal improvement. And so all the hobbies that I do, I, my favorite part of doing each of them is like the first three years when I go from complete novice sucking ass mm-hmm. to somewhat competent. Yeah. Like that's so fun. And then like very rarely do I have the commitment to go from uh, competent to like expert. I don't think I'm like 90th percentile in anything. Right. And I just like, I don't have the, the focus for it. Right. But those first three years are just so fun. And, you know, some hobbies stick around for longer than others. So, you know, running and doing triathlon for, you know, maybe the better part of a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those will stick around for a long time. But I could expect that maybe in a couple years after I get decent at, um, some other stuff, maybe freediving, that I'll be less interested in it because I'm just not making as much progress. Yeah. But so far right now, I'm like really enjoying all those things. I love to surf. I'm loving spearfishing, yeah. um, going out almost every weekend, and then continuing to do the more endurance-based sports just 
one as a way of staying fit, but also because they're really rewarding and fun in and of themselves. Yeah, challenge the mind. Yeah. So it's yeah. safe to say you lean more towards jack of all trades? Yes, very much so. I think I can, it's hard for me to point to one thing that I'm, you know, like 90th percentile in, mm -hmm. um, but I can point to a lot of things where I think I'm like well above average. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you had to pick one, skill or activity that you felt like you were the best at or what what is the one thing that you feel like you're the best at yeah um it's probably not any of the hobbies oh wow. it's probably like uh like a mental pursuit like okay. maybe this is like a little cocky to say but i think like if you had to stack rank me on every single dimension mm -hmm. from like yeah, spearfishing to playing pool or like, you know, being able to bounce a ball in a ring and then like every one of these dimensions. The thing that I do regularly that I think uh, I'm most exceptional at is, yeah, some kind of like cognitively oriented yeah. like task, task thinking it. through something, being strategic. Yeah. Um, stuff with numbers. Stuff with numbers, yeah, very analytically oriented stuff. Mm -hmm. That's probably where I feel like I spike the highest. Mm -hmm. And I actually think I have very low athletic talent. <laughs> I think I have very low athletic talent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for how hard I train yeah. at running or some of these other things, I'm just like still a very average, maybe slightly above average marathon runner right. um, and like maybe slightly more above average triathlete. Yeah. Um, I think if you just like sum up all the hours that I spend on it, I should be better. Right. So well, let me push back on that a little yeah. bit. Just see what you say. Wouldn't that be relative to all the other triathlon runners? That yeah, you're like average or slightly above average. But if you looked at the rest of the population, you're like top ten percent, right? Yeah. Because no, like how many people out there could do a triathlon? That's for sure. Right? That's for sure. But I would say like amongst people that do triathlon, mm -hmm. if you <clears throat> stack ranked us by how many hours that we train. Mm -hmm. I probably train more for less results, yep. and there are a lot of people that train less for, for greater results by definition. So that's what I mean by athletic talent. Yep. Like, um, even on some very objective measures, like there's a very standard formula for what your maximum heart rate should be at a given age. Mm -hmm. It's like 220 minus your age. Yep. Um, so on, using that formula, it's very generic. My maximum heart rate should be 190. Mm -hmm. but I feel like my maximum heart rate is always capped out at like 175 or 180. And that's just like basically raw amount of work that your heart can do. Mm -hmm. And so by definition, I'm going to perform lower than somebody that has a higher maximum heart rate. Okay. So I think like this is like a total tangent, but like for triathlon and marathon, a lot of the things that you measure is just like there's two measures. One is like how much horsepower or um, like how much raw work can your body do mm -hmm. and then the other measure is how efficiently does your engine run mm -hmm. so like you can think about it if like you know you have like a tank of gas maybe it's 16 liters maybe it's 20 liters and then you could also have the miles per gallon that you get out of the, the efficiency of your vehicle yeah. and so training is really only ever operating on that second piece which is like, can I get my engine to be more efficient? Yeah. Can I do more work for less gas? Yeah. 
but you can't really change the tank right you know so i'm just stuck on my relatively limited tank um and you're maxed out i'm maxed out so i'm I'm always going to be like if you were to use a basketball analogy i feel like i'll always be like the high iq low physical attributes player i'm trying to think of somebody who like meets that criteria in today's game Jokic. yeah that would be like (laughs) the most generous yeah player comp for me yeah i got you got it um okay next one it's an interesting question i'll try to keep it as short as possible and then i'll let you answer it however you please um the world is turbulent how do you what did i say how do you navigate this how do you stay present how do you stay calm and composed pay attention but not let things overwhelm you yeah I might not be the best person to answer this because I read way too much news and I'm like highly invested in things that I have zero control over. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm kind of like a prepper. Yeah. So like the end of the world scenarios probably occupy too much mind space for me relative yeah. to the probability that they occur. Yeah. Um, but I think like practical advice wise, things that I'm trying to coach myself to do more is very much in the stoic tradition is like if you cannot make a difference in this thing right now then as best as possible just put it out of your head yeah so don't get too bogged down in the news of the day the current events like just do what you can and then accept that those are things that you can cannot control yeah um i think that's advice that I continue to circle back to and try to do better on. And then there's like the very tactical, pragmatic things, which is to reinforce that in myself, just meditating consistently, journaling consistently, trying to stay grounded, touch grass, grass, be outside, get some sunlight, get sunlight, you know, invest in your relationships, Um, know that the things that are right in front of your face, the things that you can touch and feel and see and people that you can talk to, like those are all the things that are real to your immediate world and like some far off conflict in Ukraine yeah like should have no bearing on my mood on any given day right um i like that answer and yeah i, I hear you on like if you pay attention you can kind of get into the doom and gloom a little bit yeah which i i, I acknowledge that but then i also think we should try to pay attention a little bit more just because eventually the world and your world will overlap. Yep. So if you're ignorant or you're clueless, then it could catch you off guard or yep. yeah, something catches you by surprise and you're not ready for it. Yeah. So I think that's true. And how I reconcile those things is you should have prepared for those tail events mm-hmm. in the same way that you should be prepared for an earthquake or a natural disaster. But once you have that earthquake kit prepared, it should occupy no mind space day to day. Just know that you're ready for that outcome. Um, And so, you know, look, this is an advice that I don't follow well because I love reading the news and getting like really deep into all these things. But I think it's probably better for me if I were able to completely compartmentalize those things and yep. just approach it from a preparer's mindset. Got it. Um, okay, so we got about 10 more minutes, a couple more questions. Uh, we'll do like, 
don't know what you call it, like a speed round, let's say. Okay. So fire off a quick response. You brought it up. We talked about it a lot. Stoicism. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear how you learned about it and what has it done for your life? I don't know how I learned about it, mm-hmm. but it has definitely helped me be more grounded and content and maybe uh, just happier in general. Yeah. It's uh, really strong. Content is a good word. Yeah. It's like you're at peace. Exactly. Accepting. Yep, exactly. Nice. Um, you mentioned yesterday and even today a little bit this idea that if somebody tells you something, your immediate response is to kind of, you said zag. And broadly speaking, you could describe that as like challenging authority a little bit, mm-hmm. or being a little bit rebellious. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? Is that always how, is that been, oh, is that always been how you were? I think it came from my mom. Okay. Um, she was very prescriptive mother Mm. Um, so it was very much a household of do what I say because I told you to and you never really entertained the whys Um, and because I just had all this pent up wanting to question why her approach was correct I think that kind of just now that I'm an adult and I get to ask why or challenge these things like I just like relish in it yeah Yeah. you're gonna enjoy it yeah nice okay um yeah, we can fit in two more, two or three more. This one is just for fun, but I, I'm curious to hear what is the case for Bitcoin. So yesterday you said after our, our last talk, uh, you got a little bit more of it. Mm-hmm. Curious to hear why do you think it's a good move? I think for me it's a hedge, okay. uh, a very very long tail hedge. Yeah. So. I'm thinking about a very specific scenario in my mind. Um, In the off chance that America is no longer the dominant world power and war is on our shores and, you know, similar to how there were refugees fleeing communist Vietnam, communist China fleeing to America, there is a non-zero possibility of us needing to flee America for some other country that we don't anticipate. And I think one commonality amongst successful immigrant stories is those people that fled, um, some of them hid like a little bit of a nugget of gold in the bottom of a toothpaste, or they had something where they were not literally starting from zero. And that seed was allowed them to start a small business or to not starve for that first month and that's at the trajectory of their family on a much better path than the people that truly came as refugees with nothing. Yeah. And so that's very much how I think about Bitcoin yeah. uh, and the case for it mm-hmm. is like if you think there is even like a 0.01% chance of like a catastrophic collapse of the American economy and the U.S. dollar not being, um, you know, the most valuable f- world reserve currency, mm-hmm. then holding a little bit of digital gold in the form of Bitcoin or physical gold in the, ter- in the, the form of like a gold chain or gold jewelry or even a gold coin. I think it's like, it's worth whatever money you put in it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, if nothing else, in that case, to be able to feed yourself for a couple of days right. uh, without having to like immediately go to the soup kitchen or what have you. Yeah. Um, real quick, do you think it's trending in that direction given 
inflation, given all these other countries like making alliances with each other, uh, not using the dollar as the reserve currency, do you think we're trending in that direction? When the, the, the dollar loses its dominance, let's say? I think it is very hard to say, and this is all secondhand based on things that we've read, so we're just parroting back yep. things that we've heard and are trying to make our own value judgments against them. Yep. Um, I think it's unlikely that in our lifetimes, the US dollar is no longer the Federal Reserve currency from a government-backed fiat perspective, mm-hmm. because that's all relative. You have to weigh the relative safety of the US dollar against the Chinese yuan or the, the rupee or the real or whatever. And like in today's day and age, and probably for the foreseeable future, the US dollar is still going to be better than those other outcomes. Right. Um, so I don't see there being like a dr- drastic transition of power between the US dollar and another government backed currency. All those things that you mentioned do suggest that we're moving to a more multipolar world where, you know, maybe before 95% of, you know, cross-country transactions were being done in U.S. dollars. In the future, maybe it's 85% or 75%. Mm-hmm. You know, you still have a world reserve currency in the U.S. dollar. It's just not as strongly a reserve currency as it was previously. And so... Yeah, I think it will be hard because Bitcoin is not backed by a government with a military and guns, let's say. But, you know, it's kind of a safe thing for people to hold where, yeah, I very much distrust governments. So having a little bit of Bitcoin makes a lot of sense. Nice. Okay. Um, Yeah, we got time for it. This next question hopefully is a little bit fun. Hopefully jogs some memories. Uh, But I remember... I don't, I don't remember what the book is called, but there was a book for people to prepare for the consulting interviews. Mm-hmm. And you always get those questions where essentially it's just like, you want to see how the person thinks, right? Sure. And so there's one that I remember, <clears throat> I don't know, you come across it. How would you calculate the number of airplanes in the sky right now? You ever heard that one before? I haven't. You want to you walk us through that real quick? Ah, it's been a long time, but I'll do my best. Do your best, bro. Do my best. I'm curious. Number of airplanes in the the sky sky at this particular moment across the entire world. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Normally at this point, I would ask for a little bit of time and buy myself a little space and write something down, but I think we'll just wing it for the sake of this interview. How would I think about this? Maybe we could break this up by uh, kind of a commercial use. Mm-hmm. And um, let's say three three branches. You have commercial use, like the airplanes that you fly. Um, regular people. Regular people in. Mm-hmm. You have military use. Mm-hmm. So this is all the airplanes that are in the sky from various governments fighting wars. Uh, and then you have airplanes in the sky for, let's see, personal. I guess you call... Transportation? Yeah, transportation is another bucket. Maybe we'll go with that. Personal slash business, um, military, and then freight and transport. Um, How would you estimate each of those? Maybe like for the sake of brevity, we'll park the other two and just focus on the professional, the the commercial use piece. Um, But you could kind of like play the same thing out for each of those other 
pieces, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we do this bottoms up. So um, what I would look at is how many different major metropolitan cities mm -hmm. there are. Um, and then let's just assume that for each of those cities, they have a certain number of flights between them. Um, and like a, you know, a certain number of them are in the air at a given point. Yep. So like right this second, I don't know, I'm just gonna throw out some numbers. Yeah. Uh, let's call it like, trying to think how many metropolitan cities there are in America. Let's say like two per state. Two per state. So let's say a hundred. Yeah. Let's say there are hundred metropolitan cities in America and then there are another 500 globally, mm -hmm. or 400 globally to make it a total of 500. Mm -hmm. um, let's say, so what is that like? Each one of those could connect to a certain number of cities yeah. um, on any given point. So maybe like those 500 cities are each concurrently flying to 25% of those destinations. Yeah. So. I picked a hard number. Let's pick an easier number. Yeah. Let's say at any given point, those 500 cities are flying to 50% of destinations. Yeah. Uh, so that's 500 times 250. I don't know what that is. Three zeros. 125,000 flights mm -hmm. that are being flown concurrently. That would be my best guess of it. Nice. Did that make any amount of sense? or? Uh, yeah, I'll take it. I'll yeah. take it. I think, well, you can answer this too. It's like, it really doesn't matter like what the final answer is, right? Yeah. It's just as the interviewer, you want to see how the person walks you through it. Yeah. Their thought process, blah, 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 right? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'm actually very curious now if we could Google that really quick. You want to do it? How many flights are in the air? I'll do how many planes are in the air. Yeah. Uh, okay. What do we got? How many planes are in there right now? An average of 9,728 commercial airplanes in the sky at any given time. Okay, so off by a factor of 10. You Not said bad. what, 100,000? I said 100,000. Right. Wait, you multiplied 500 by 250? Yeah. Isn't that... 125,000? Isn't it 10,000? Is it? 250. 500 times 20. Oh, 500 times 20 would be 10,000. So I'm wrong. Yeah. 500 times 200 is 100,000. Yep. I see. Okay. Yeah. So I was off by a factor of 10. Yes, right. In, in the ballpark. Yes, all good. Again, thought process. Okay, last question. Hit me. What is a life well lived for you? What is a life well lived for me? Yeah. How do you describe it? How do you think about it? You can speak generally or you can, you know, speak for yourself. I think I can only say that what I think is life will live for myself is one that should apply generally, but so so one and the same. Um, for me, a big component of it must be must be children and your progeny. So a life well lived is to have um, some children and get to see your grandchildren, hopefully, and even better if you could see your great grandchildren. Yeah be happy, prosperous, well-adjusted, people that you would want to spend time with, people that you're proud of having raised. So family is a huge component of it. Yeah. Um, a life well lived is having contributed something of value and positive to society, mm -hmm. not just have made a personal financial wealth, yeah. but 
um, even if nobody writes about it in the history books, for you to say that society, the world at large, is slightly, slightly better as a result of your labor, um, whether that be influencing individual people. So, you know, even just being a good husband or a father can contribute to the second dimension of having contributed to society because you're, you're producing people that are going to contribute to society um, in some small way. Um, and then maybe the third dimension is just like having done something that you really love. Uh, and that, again, could be maybe you just truly love being a father yeah. um, and that's how you find fulfillment and value. But if it's not that, then I think, um, you know, having pursued some passion of your own to um, a degree of which you're proud of, I think, uh, you know, if you have a little bit of those, each of those three components, then I'd be very happy looking back on it. Right, a life well lived. That's right. Wes, I appreciate you, man. Of course, man. Thank you for doing this. Shout out Omega Sigma Tau. Hey, shout out to the boys, man. See you guys in October. <laughs> yes, sir. Please keep it together. Yeah. Uh, Wes is getting married. If you made it this far, Wes, our guy, he's getting married in October. So, Omegas, if you're listening, we'll see you in October. Yes, sir. Thanks, right. Ryan.